Hello all and a warm welcome to a very belated episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Belated because this one seems to have conspired against me a bit. You may have seen on the group Facebook updates that for the past couple of weeks I've been a bit poorly. Busy times in my day job have really caught up with me and over the past few weeks my throat has been so swollen that I felt like I had Andre the Giant's bollocks in there. My body has been aching like I've carried every single member of the polyphonic spree up a ladder one by one and I've generally just felt like death when death himself is ill. So I thought I'd better take it easy and slow down a bit If I'm not feeling that I can put out the best that I can do for the show, then I'd rather always wait until I feel that I can. So when I felt I could do, I wrote a massive chunk of this episode, and then my laptop had a strop and decided very kindly to wipe the lot. And trying to get it back was like trying to turn golden piss into pure solid gold. So now I've rewritten it, I'm dosed up, even though you might notice from my voice that I still sound a bit off. I'm rested up and I'm back with the delayed closing part of the South Wales Slayer Saga, which we'll get to shortly and which you lovely folks have been very understanding about being so late. I'm of course your host Paul, the creator of and the true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's as fab as ever having you enthusiasts joining me here once again and I hope that as you hear it, the episode finds you well. So because I've been under the weather, this has also had a knock-on with the Ask Me Anything Patreon episode, and I've now put this off again for a couple of weeks. There will still be a bonus Patreon episode of the show out in October, and the Ask Me Anything episode is coming, I promise you folks, I'm just feeling it a proper bit right now. Massive thanks though to my new and returning Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this week going to Colin Craggs, Anne, Paula Cassidy Bishop, Alison Ryland, Pam Kitchens, Chantelle Wilson, Anna Bonde, Malora Holub, Chris Ledwell, Kathleen Kimple, Bronwyn, Robert Ashley, Grace Butler, Rini Gagnon, John Cook, Karen Ann Chalupnik, Andy Walker, Sarah, Helen Stappard, and Sylvia Hills, who I very belatedly missed out thanking. And I must apologise as well for any of you guys who do support the show as Patreons that I've ever missed thanking out here on an episode. That's completely my bad and I'm so sorry. Your support is so much appreciated and each and every one of you really does mean the world to the enthusiast. And I'll just talk about the show in general. I'm not turning into The Rock or anything to speak in the third person, you know. There's been stuff sent out for some that hopefully should be with you by now, if not already, then very shortly. And of course, I hope that you've all gotten around to the several bonus episodes of the show that you get for being a Patreon supporter. For anyone interested in joining these guys and becoming a supporter of the show, then like trying to confuse a Kardashian, it's not hard at all. There's a link to the show's Patreon page in the episode show notes every week, or you can just head over and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. It's got the same show logo, and you can just go from there. Before you know it, you could be listening to tales such as The Rotten Rose of Devon, Obsession by the Sea, or the latest one that's up, The Beauty in the Bikini for less than a go on the lottery each month. So before we continue with the final part of the South Wales Slayer Saga, I have a short word from the show's kind sponsor, which is once again this week, Stitch Fix. Would you love someone sorting your wardrobe out for you so you've always a bit of a fresh trendy style, choosing you items that are perfectly suited for you and the exact sizes and style of clothing that you like? 
Harvard graduate Katrina Law did. She hated the dilemmas and nightmares that come with endless trawling around clothes shops, sizes that look great off you but feel dreadful on you, and stuff that you buy, unsure about but you buy in faith, and that just doesn't match your existing wardrobe when you get it home. These are all mares that we can relate to, I'm sure. So Katrina started Stitch Fix, an online solution which puts an end to all nightmares like this, and which you can find all about right now and support the show in the process by heading over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. That's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime and registering. Let me give you some more info. Stitch Fix takes care of styling you. For just a simple register and filling in a short but thorough online style quiz that takes up no more than a few minutes of your time. The quiz is a visual survey type one where you highlight the styles of clothing that you like, your sizes and your preferred fits, and the budget that you've got. By doing this, you're then telling your own Stitch Fix stylist exactly what you like and they've got all they need to handpick you a five item parcel including exclusive brand items from not only up and coming designers but established European fashion names also. As they've kindly sponsored the show I've had the Stitch Fix experience myself and I've got to say I was left very impressed because it's a great service. The quiz is really easy and really quick to do, and in a very swift delivery turnaround time, I had a great parcel of five various items, with a wonderful personal note for my stylist and a style card suggesting different outfits and styles for myself. Not only were the clothes great, but they represented the styles that I'd indicated in my quiz, so I know my responses had been considered, and it wasn't just five items picked at random and slung into a bag. With so many different styles available, it's guaranteed that Stitch Fix has something for everybody. So when you've signed up, done your quiz and got your parcel, you simply try on and match and mix your new togs with your existing wardrobe and see if you've got a killer new look. What else is great here is that whatever you love from your parcel you buy and anything you don't want, then you can simply return completely free of charge. You just explain what, if anything, you're returning a very simple online checkout, stuff in the bag, boom, Robert's your mother's brother, and your stylist's charge of just £10 is deducted from the cost of whatever you decide to buy. You can have a try for yourselves today and support the show in the process as I've said by heading over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. Once again, that's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime to be a part of this great service. The chance of a new look each month simply by registering, completing a short but in-depth style quiz and a £10 stylist fee deducted from whatever you buy, nothing more than that. Head over there today to get yourself stitch fixed. So this week then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast brings the closing chapter in this series' five-part saga, The South Wales Slayer, which I'm sure a few are glad about, and I for one certainly am. Don't get me wrong, it's been one of the most fascinating cases overall that I've ever looked at here on The Enthusiast. It's probably been my most challenging research and I've absolutely loved bringing it to you. But it's also one of the most brutal and disturbing cases with it. And when you steep yourself in researching something like this to make a five episode arc, you tend to get a bit sick of hearing about someone so evil, especially someone who looks such a bloody idiot with a stupid perm. 
But there is a tale to finish here, so if you haven't listened to any of the previous four parts of the South Wales Slayer arc, it will much better contextualise if you go back and start from part one. And really, does anyone start a five episode arc at part five? No, don't think so. Why would you do that? So if you guys have caught up, then you'll know of the horrific crimes that John Cooper had committed over a period of several years, and how a painstaking and miraculous investigation many years after these crimes, with him identified as a prime suspect, discovered the evidence that unquestionably tied him to four murders, a rape, and an indecent assault. Really remarkable work, described at its conclusion following Cooper's sentence to a whole life tariff in 2011 as one of the most remarkable police investigations in British criminal history. And it truly was, I mean, how often do you get to describe how shit, but how ace, bullseye was to a wide audience and it's really an important part of an episode. It's been a true highlight of the show for me, that has, really has. Following Cooper's conviction in 2011, South Wales Police declared that they were preparing to re-examine a number of unsolved murders and suspicious deaths that they had had on their files for several years to examine any possibility of John Cooper's culpability in them. Now I must stress at this point that since his conviction, more than eight years ago now, John William Cooper has never yet reportedly faced any further charges and there is no record of the progress of any possible investigations into further crimes that he may have committed. There are five deaths from the South Wales area, spreading from the mid-1970s to the early 1990s, that are commonly linked together as being those that police are especially focusing upon as being possible Cooper crimes. These being a double murder, a suspicious death, and another double death that was, quite bemusingly I thought, ruled to be a murder-suicide. But when I started the True Crime Enthusiast as a blog some years ago, I come across and covered a case from North Wales that due to Cooper's transient working lifestyle and his long involvement with farming and farming areas, I believe he should be considered as a possible person of interest in. Yet again, I must stress, I cannot say definitively that Cooper is responsible for all, if even any of the following accounts that you'll hear within the episode, which I'll recount in chronological order. I leave it up to you guys to think what you shall about its possible culpability. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, so as always here on the show, I advise listener discretion guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we cap off the South Wales Slayer arc with an episode simply entitled Possibles. Now my home area of North Wales does have a number of unsolved murders in its dark history and each of which over time we'll get to here on the show but truly one of the most horrific is the murder in December 1975 of severely infirm pensioner Hugh Watson. A near crippled 77 year old man Hugh was found dead in a blazing squalid cow shed that he called home in the small town of Llanroost right on the edge of Snowdonia. It's a case that's frustratingly hard to find information about and one that almost seems to be forgotten due to the passage of time since it occurred. Which is exactly what I serve to shoot down here on the enthusiast. No one should be forgotten, should they? Hugh Watson had spent his entire working life around farms and the farming industry. Born in 1898, 
He'd spent the best part of 50 years working as a threshing machine engineer before the onset of combine harvesting in the midst of the 20th century. In his later years, he'd driven a road roller and tractors before ill health had caused him to first slow down and then to ultimately stop working. Long since retired, infirm and reclusive, by 1975, the 77-year-old pensioner had settled to live in the small market town of Llan Roost, where he'd made a squalid cowshed near a hay barn just off the town's station road, his home. Hugh was not originally a native of the area, instead hailing from the village of Llanfihangel Glyn Miver near Kerrigudrudian, but after leaving there as a young man, he'd never gone back to the area, instead settling in the Llan Roost area, where he'd enjoyed spending so much time working over the years, as it's a largely agricultural community. Hugh had no existing family, and he'd never married or had any children. Perhaps as a combination of a working life of hard physical labour and his age, by the time he was 77, Hugh was left severely infirm. He couldn't walk without the aid of two walking sticks, and one of his legs was near completely useless. Due to this, Hugh was a well-known and recognisable figure in the Tlanroost area. His infirmness made any journey for him a cumbersome and challenging one, but one journey that he did make regularly was to bask in the hostelry of the Penabrin Hotel Bar in Tlanroost's Ancaster Square, which he would visit each evening. Drawn by the warmth and company, Hugh nevertheless tended to keep to himself, normally drinking alone, enjoying his pipe and just enjoying being a part of the crowd. However, he wasn't aloof, and he was well-liked, and along with his love of a game of dominoes, Hugh would often regale the clientele of the hotel bar by holding court with tales of yesteryear from a generation gone by, which I always personally love hearing from old folks. I think old people are great, and I always enjoy a tale from a way of life gone by that you just can't imagine yourselves from someone who has proper lived. So, the night of Tuesday the 9th of December 1975 was no exception. Hugh had spent that evening as usual in the Penabrin Hotel. He played his customary game of fives and threes, which is a great and sometimes very competitive form of dominoes that my dad taught me to play many years ago. And he was then happily watching other regulars play. It was remembered later amongst the regulars that night that the constant pain Hugh felt due to his crippled leg seemed to be worse than ever that night, as in order to even watch the dominoes being played, he had to lean on the shoulder of another regular who was stood at the bar just to support himself. Hugh said goodbye to his friends just after 9.30 that evening and set off on foot on his journey home. Although the journey isn't far for a fit and healthy person, this journey would have taken the infirm Hugh a considerable amount of time. Hugh was never seen alive again after leaving the Penabrin Hotel that evening. At about 11.15 that evening, two police officers driving along Station Road spotted a building fiercely ablaze. Realising that it was the hay barn adjacent to where Hugh lived, they quickly raised the alarm and fire crews from Tlan Roost and nearby Betsakoid were soon at the scene. It's of course long since gone now, but where the barn stood at the time was located behind houses on a quiet residential part of Station Road, and as is human nature, locals came out of their houses to offer their assistance, but basically to watch the emergency services activity lingering on their doorsteps throughout the night watching the scene unfold. Hugh, sadly, wasn't one of these people. 
His body was discovered in the hayloft in the early hours of the morning by firefighters bringing the inferno under control. Through his charred body, it initially appeared that Hugh may have perhaps dropped his lit pipe that had started a fire which had soon gutted the building and claimed his life, with him unable to move due to his infirmness. Yet how did he get into the hayloft? When the scene was made safe, an examination of Hugh's body carried out soon afterwards by Home Office pathologist Dr Donald Waite determined the cause of death being as asphyxia. But this was no tragic accident. A full-scale murder investigation was launched by North Wales Police that Wednesday morning because the examination showed that Hugh also bore signs of being stabbed more than 20 times, possibly with a weapon similar to a pitchfork the remnants of which were found in the ashes of the hay barn. The murder hunt was launched and an incident room was set up at Llanroost Police Station. About 40 detectives were drafted in from all parts of North Wales to assist in the hunt, including members of the regional crime squad, but police very quickly realised they had little to go on. After Hugh's body was found amongst the remnants of the hay bales and the cow shed, when the fire was extinguished, detectives undertook a painstaking search of the site using floodlights. But they were hindered by the effects of the fire on the scene, the passage of emergency services persons through the crime scene, and the lifestyle Hugh had led, for he'd lived in a state of near squalor anyway. The officer leading the hunt for Hugh's killer, Detective Chief Superintendent Eric Evans, highlighted the difficulties police faced from the off, saying, Many clues were destroyed by firemen tackling the blaze. The clothing was burnt so we couldn't get any fibres for forensics. Mr Watson lived in a cow shed that was in a terrible state. If he'd been living in a house, we could have at least looked for fingerprints. So after establishing a time frame between Hugh last being seen alive and the fire being discovered, Detectives realised they had a time frame of about an hour and 45 minutes to account for, in which time Hugh had met his killer. Now it would have taken Hugh an estimated at least 25 minutes to get home at the speed he could manage, which would place him home at about 10pm after leaving the pub. The fire was spotted at 11.15pm, so it was surmised that Hugh was attacked shortly after he'd arrived home, and that the killer had spent a considerable amount of time with his victim. This was determined due to the wounds on Hugh's body, which Detective Chief Superintendent Eric Evans further said about, Some of the wounds inflicted on Hugh were very serious, but others were superficial. We think that whoever committed the crime spent some time in the barn with the victim. Detectives were left baffled by the motive for Hugh's horrific death. However, it was feeling in the local area that perhaps gossip and rumour had led to Hugh being targeted for robbery. As is so often the case, a reclusive elderly man who has no family and who lives in near squalor is rumoured, perhaps rightly or wrongly, to be wealthy and miserly. Perhaps the killer had overheard local gossip that Hugh had a considerable amount of hard cash hidden around the cowshed that he called home. Indeed, investigation uncovered rumours that this sum could be as much as £300, though this claim was never confirmed. Now what helped fuel these rumours was the fact that Hugh was often seen to be paying for rounds of drinks in the pub with £20 notes. Although this may have been a genuine attempt to change his weekly pension down into smaller, much more manageable sums for him in a place that he often frequented. 
As Christmas of 1975 approached, the investigation continued and uniformed officers visited every house in the Roost area as part of the inquiry, which was later extended to all properties in the neighbouring village of Trefru. In total, police interviewed more than 6,000 people, took many statements and made several public appeals, which all ultimately proved fruitless. But they did have one person that they wished to trace. As Llanroost is quite a small town, any stranger is noticed sooner rather than later. The initial appeal for information leading to the arrest of Hughes' killer brought reports of a stranger sighted in the area that detectives wished to interview to eliminate from their inquiries. This man was sighted at Llandidno Junction, only a mere 10 miles or so from Llanroost, at 9.50pm on the night of the murder. Now a similar man was also spotted in Station Road in Tlanroost mere minutes before the fire was noticed. There's only a distance of 12 miles between these two points on a very direct route, so was this the same person? The time frame between sightings made it certainly possible for it to be, and the man was described as being 20 to 30 years old, bearded, of medium build with dark hair, and wearing a dark overcoat and trousers. A similar man was seen very early the next morning boarding a train at Llandidno Junction, but appeals for him to come forward and eliminate himself from the inquiry were unsuccessful and he was never traced. There's no further information available through research other than this concerning this man. Now Hugh's case still remains open and it remains police opinion, indeed it always has been, that a stranger to the Llanroost area killed Hugh. When interviewed by the North Wales Daily Post newspaper 13 years after the murder, in a feature concerning cold cases, Detective Chief Superintendent Eric Evans reinforced this view, saying, If the offender was a local person, we still feel sure that there must be someone who would have seen him with his clothing disarrayed or would have noticed a change in his manner, such as nervousness. The only suspect ever to have seriously been in the frame is the bearded stranger spotted in the vicinity of Station Road that evening, but there's only ever been that vague description of this man, and he's never been traced. Hugh was found to have no known enemies or any disputes with anyone, more than 6,000 people in the local area were questioned, and all were ruled out. So if then it wasn't a local person responsible... How then was Hugh targeted and was robbery the motive? It's known that local rumours abounded about Hugh being financially well off, perhaps as a result of receiving a lump sum of pension back pay or having had an insurance policy mature. He was also very infirm, unable to walk without the aid of two walking sticks and would have been easy to overpower. It's also known that Hugh lived alone in a state of squalor, so it stands to reason that a person who calls a cowshed a home and has such a simplistic lifestyle is unlikely to have anything of value except cash. However much cash Hugh had to his name is unknown, so it's impossible to say how much, if any cash, was stolen. Indeed, it's not known exactly what, if anything, was taken from the scene. Strangely, Hugh's wallet was found in the ashes, still containing the charred remains of £18 in notes. Now this sum equates through inflation to almost £200 today, so in 1975 this was a substantial amount of money, far too much to ignore if robbery was a motive. Yet it stands to reason that a wallet would be a primary target of any thief, so why was this not taken? 
and if it was dropped, why did it not burn? Did the killer spend longer at the scene with the fire? So what was the need for such violence towards a defenceless, crippled old man, 20 plus stab wounds with what's most likely a pitchfork? I mean, who does that? That's just an atrocity, isn't it? Hugh had already been stabbed several times before the fire started, but the cause of death was attributed ultimately to asphyxia. The stab wounds, although serious, were not ultimately fatal, although due to the number of them, they would surely have proven fatal if Hugh had not asphyxiated first. Police opinion was that Hugh had been tortured horribly in an attempt for the killer to gain the whereabouts of any hidden cash that he may have had, and it was reinforced by the discovery that while some of these stab wounds were superficial, others were deeper and more severe as though a killer was experimenting with torture, perhaps a killer who was once setting out on his murderous career. An even more chilling theory is that after being stabbed and giving up any cash that he possibly had secreted away, Hugh was then finally tortured in the most unimaginably chilling and evil way possible, with him left helplessly watching a fire that was deliberately set to remove any trace evidence of the killer from the scene, perhaps to destroy fingerprints or any other forensic evidence. Supporting this theory is the fact that Hugh's body was found in the hayloft itself and not in the adjacent cowshed where he lived, although the cowshed was consumed in the fire also. He couldn't have possibly climbed up to the position he was found in by himself, so why was he placed there? Was he placed there because it was a position he couldn't move from and he was left to die horrifically? What kind of callous killer would do that to a defenceless old man? Almost 44 years later, there are still more questions than answers concerning the murder of Hugh Watson. The case is still officially open, as I've said, but the trail has long now since gone cold. Now, why I include this case with a list of possible crimes that can be attributed to John Cooper may appear tenuous at first, but I ask you guys to consider the following. Based on Cooper's known crimes that have been covered in previous episodes of this arc, we know that he was ruthless and sadistic, killed for pitiful amounts, and would sometimes miss or ignore money that was in plain sight, and that at least on one of the known occasions that he killed, committed arson to ostensibly remove any traces of himself from the scene. Both Hugh and Cooper had also spent many years working in the agricultural industry, travelling the length and breadth of Wales, so it's possible that they may have encountered and known one another previously, which would be another reason to kill Hugh to prevent any identification from him. Cooper was a transient worker, as we've said, so he could feasibly have been in the North Wales area at the time, and he would also have been of a similar age and arguably description to the issued description of the bearded man that police wished to trace. Now as I've said, I'm in no way suggesting that Cooper is definitely responsible, it's good old thinking out loud here really, and this could of course have been the work of someone equally as twisted and callous. But he's not a bad suspect, is he? Based on the crimes we know Cooper has committed, there are certainly circumstantial pointers, and he's certainly evil enough to have done so, certainly. And if so, then did he possibly kill again, almost a year to the day, in Pembrokeshire, of all places? Skip forward now to the morning of Saturday, December the 11th, 1976. 
Postman Nigel Rossiter was making his usual rounds to the scattering of houses and farms that made up the village of Llangolman, a rural spot on the southeastern part of Pembrokeshire's Preseli Hills, towards the northeastern part of the county. One of his regular ports of call was to a remote farmhouse in Llangolman called Finn and Sampson, which had been occupied for many years by a brother and sister, 73-year-old retired farmer Griff Thomas and his 70-year-old sister Patty. A reclusive couple, neither of whom had ever married and who'd lived at Finn and Sampson all of their lives, the arrangement that they had with the postman was that any mail for the siblings was to be left on the porch step, whereas any outgoing post would be left on the step also. So Nigel Rossiter had arrived at Finn and Sampson between 8.20 and 8.30 that morning and picked up off the porch step what he thought was outgoing post before realising as he'd set off that it was the very post that he had delivered himself two days before. He'd delivered there on the Thursday and hadn't seen either Griff or Patty then so he now felt some concerns for the elderly couple and decided to return back. After returning and knocking but receiving no response, Nigel Rossiter decided to enter the house to call out and was confronted by an atrocious scene. He described later, Going into the house, I had to go in a good bit of the room because there was a big chair or something in the way. I could see this charred body in a nest of cushions and a made-out thing like as if it was a nest. The body Nigel could see was lying in the remnants of what had been a stack of cushions and a wooden clothes settle and had such extensive burn into it that it was only the feet that could be made out. Shocked, Nigel ran out of the property to a nearby house where he was to alert police. Despite having seen a man's body in the sitting room, which was likely to have been Griff Thomas's, in his shock he hadn't noticed another one when he'd rushed out to raise the alarm. When Nigel returned to Finn and Sampson with police a short time later to show them what he'd found, Patty Thomas's body was also found in the parlour. She was slumped over at the dining table, resting on a magazine rack. Massive, visible head wounds suggested that she'd been bludgeoned to death, possibly with a heavy dining room chair, which was found lying nearby on its side, heavily bloodstained. There was no other murder weapon apparent. With a double murder inquiry launched, a team of 50 detectives began a search for the brutal killer of the elderly couple, and as house-to-house inquiries began and forensic and fingerprint experts moved into Finn and Samson, the Thomas's background was examined. It was unlikely that a reclusive church-going couple such as Patty and Griff would have any enemies, but the possibility had to be checked and their last known movements established. It was established that Griff had last been seen alive at around 4pm on Tuesday December the 7th when he'd left his home and walked to the village shop in Tlangolman. Now this was customary for Griff to do, visit for his daily newspaper and to buy any basic groceries that he and Patty needed. That's where he was last seen alive shortly after 4 when he'd left the local village store after buying the western mail and some bread and cheese. It was thought that the couple had met their deaths the same evening as police found the television set and house lights on and the fire had melted the plastic lens on Griff's wristwatch, stopping the hands at 8.20. Griff also didn't call at the village shop for his daily paper on Wednesday as was custom and nor had either Patty or Griff been seen by the postman that same day or the next day until they were found on Saturday. 
This pointed to a likely time of death for the couple to be in sometime in the mid-evening of the Tuesday. Post-mortem showed that Griff had died primarily due to extensive burns received from lying on the seat of the fire, but also had a cracked skull, whereas Patty had been savagely bludgeoned to death and had died of massive head wounds. Soot in the airways of both bodies showed the couple were both alive when the fire had been started, and carbon monoxide traces in Griff's blood showed that he died later than Patty had. A nail was found embedded in Griff's forehead, but forensic tests indicated that this was as a result of the wooden clothes settle collapsing upon him during the fire, rather than evidence of an attack. Local rumour that surfaced through house-to-house inquiries suggested to police that the likely motive for such a horrific murder was to have been robbery, because Griff and Patty were believed to be wealthy and indeed they had investments between them to the value of around £35,000, a massive sum of money at that time. Patty also had the enormous sum of £2,700 in her handbag when her body was found, and it was believed that the substantial amounts of cash the couple were rumoured to have kept around the house made them target for a robbery that went tragically and brutally wrong. A bureau in the front room of the property was also found to be unlocked and appeared to have been searched. Police never found the key to this bureau. By a week into the investigation, police had taken over 150 statements from residents in the surrounding area and had removed 174 different items from the house for forensic examination. They'd also discovered and removed 430 fingerprints from the house, which when examined, all but two were found to belong to either Griff or Patty. The other two identified prints, both of which were left thumbprints, have never been satisfactorily identified, but as both Griff's arm and left hand had been completely destroyed by the fire, they couldn't be ruled out as being his. And by this time, police had begun to rethink the fact that they were dealing with a double murder at all. It was this absence of forensic evidence proving that someone else had been in the house that made the police begin questioning whether they really were looking for a double murderer. There was no sign of forced entry to the property, the back door was found unlocked, a thorough search of the house and surrounding area in a 50-yard radius had revealed no abandoned murder weapon, and when police discovered that Patty had £2,700 in cash still in her purse, they began working on the theory that they were dealing with a bizarre murder-suicide. And this is where I believe the investigation went proper tits up on a massive scale. By the time the inquest into the deaths was held in Haverford West in February 1977, it was proposed to a coroner's court that Griff Thomas himself had killed his sister Patty and then committed suicide by burning himself to death on a fire that he'd set in the throes of madness. The inquest was told the deaths may have been the result of the siblings having a furious row over pocket money given by Miss Thomas to her brother. Now to me, the theory of events arrived at for the inquest is mind-boggling. The jury was told that the most likely sequence of events was that something must have happened between the old couple and it could have been that Miss Thomas provoked her brother by either hitting him or pulling his hair and he then retaliated. It was possible that Mr Thomas had provoked his sister first by starting a fire. Though seriously injured, He carried his sister from the kitchen of the house into the living room where she was found sitting on a magazine rack. He could then have staggered back, 
collapsing in a doorway where his blood was found before getting to his feet and then either falling back into the fire or throwing himself on it. So what do you guys think there then? Load of old shite? Yeah? The inquest jury didn't. On February 17th, 1977, the inquest jury decided Patty's death to be manslaughter at the hands of her brother, whereas an open verdict was recorded on Griff Thomas, the theory being at the time that he must have had some kind of mental breakdown, killed his sister, and then taken his own life. Griff and Patty were buried in the churchyard of St. Coleman's Church in Tlangolman, where they'd both been lifelong regular and loyal members of the congregation. However, due to the findings of the coroner's court, only Patty was recognised as being buried there. Due to his ruled actions, Griff sadly being denied a headstone. So although the case was officially closed, it was widely believed amongst the Tlangolman community that the inquest had got the case wrong and an innocent man had been wrongly accused. Many couldn't believe that Griff could be capable of such horrific crimes, and were concerned that a murderer was still on the loose, and as such, a heavy air of fear and suspicion hung throughout the rural community. Doors that were once left open due to the sense of community were now locked and bolted, the residents fearful that perhaps someone known to them had chosen the property to target because of its ruralness, had horrifically killed, and may strike again. The owner of the local garage in Tlangolman, Densley Absalom, is a lifelong resident of the area and remembers the local opinion that someone had broken into the Thomas's home due to the isolated location it stood in. He told Welsh Current Affairs programme Tarot Now in 2011, The house is isolated and was in a very lonely spot. You're not in the village itself. You're lucky if you see two or three houses within a quarter of a mile. It was a lonely spot. Even now, almost 43 years later, many locals remain convinced that the real killer is yet to be brought to justice and that the coroner's court was incorrect. Auctioneer Richard Sykes and his colleagues had the responsibility of clearing Finn and Sampson before putting it on the market after the inquest and says the state of the house, even after the police had cleaned it, makes him believe the inquest got it wrong. He told Taro now, it doesn't relate to the circumstances we saw there. I don't believe that. I think it was more of an acknowledgement that they'd failed to find evidence of a third party. It raises the question that someone else could have visited Finn and Samson that evening. I think it was shared pretty generally among the community. Did the police and inquest get this wrong? Most people who knew Griff and Patty agreed that they'd lived happily and harmoniously together throughout their lives and would never have argued. Many still testify to their kind nature and especially to Griff being a mild-mannered small man suffering from a bad back and with such crippling rheumatism that he could hardly turn the pages of his hymn book each week. So according to the inquest findings, what then would cause this loving brother to one evening brutally batter to death his sister who he'd lived with for 70 years, carry her body, bearing in mind while suffering from a bad back and rheumatism, into the parlour after having killed her in the kitchen and started a fire in the sitting room and then chosen to end his life in such a bizarre and agonising fashion, self-immolation. What kind of squabble after 70 years would cause that amount of violence? Or did Griff really just lose control of his senses one normal day after carrying out his daily routine as he had for years, as the theory presented at the inquest said? 
Yet it's hard to believe because the logical conclusion is that this was indeed a horrific double murder with robbery as the motive. It was also reported that the groceries and newspaper Grifford bought that Tuesday were found in his coat pocket, not even have been taken out. So why not? If you get home with shopping and are carrying it, the first thing you do is set it down. So why had Griff not taken these out? Was this possibly because he didn't have time to? Because the killer had already entered the house, perhaps had even attacked Patty already. Griff saw this and rushed to intervene and was overpowered. The elderly couple could have been brutally beaten into submission and lay there injured whilst the intruder searched the house. Although family members later expressed their belief that nothing had been taken, the bureau in the front room did appear to have been searched and police never found the key to it. Missing keys, eh? There was another sign that someone else may have been at the scene. One of the unidentified partial thumbprints had been found on a sewing machine that had been on a table in the parlour and traces of either Griff or Patty Thomas's blood was also found on this sewing machine. Yet this was only found after the cover had been taken off the machine, so at some point that evening, the cover had been placed back onto the machine as no traces of blood were found on the cover. Somebody searching the house, perhaps. Finding nothing, even the massive sum of cash hidden in Patty's handbag, and thinking that at least Patty was already dead, did the killer then make some sort of nest and place Griff onto it, perhaps forcing a wooden clothes settle onto him to secure or weight him down and set it alight, leaving the house to burn to destroy both bodies and any forensic evidence? Although the apparent murder weapon was the blood-soaked chair found near Patty, it was concluded at the inquest to have been too heavy to have been used by Griff to repeatedly strike Patty about the head with. Now, curiously, no other weapon was ever found, but this matter was left unexplained, the actual weapon put down to having perished in the fire. Yet although it was fierce, this was no massive fire and it had soon burned itself out, so I think that if it hadn't been the chair, any substantial weapon would likely have still been discernible even in the ashes. So for 43 years it's been ruled that Griff Thomas killed his sister then killed himself. And that fire was burning whilst both of them were still alive as soot was found in both of their airways. So he starts a fire, kills his sister, then himself? Really? I don't buy that at all, in the slightest. I think much more likely that the old couple were brutally battered by an intruder who for one reason or another decided to destroy the scene and perhaps evidence of his intrusion by fire before fleeing. But the case has never been reopened and is of course entirely possible that there is no still existing evidence from the original investigation to enable investigators to make a decent stab at it and it's a fair assumption this is too. As the case was officially resolved more than 42 years ago now, it's likely any exhibits would have been destroyed due to storage space requirements. Now once again, I can of course say this is definitively Cooper's handiwork I can't in any of these cases that I'll mention. But there are circumstantial aspects to the Thangolman deaths that when we look at what we know about his known crimes and his later handiwork, you look at and you think, well, kiss my swingers, look at that. At the time of Griff and Patty's deaths, Cooper was known to have been undertaking fencing work in the Thlangolman area and the remoteness of the house, its setting with surrounding fields, would certainly have appealed to him as a decent place to target based on his known burglary-robbery spree. There is also this ever-present farming connection, 
Griff was a retired farmer, so was it possible that Cooper and he had met before over the years? You have a remote property in which one dark winter night a reclusive brother and sister, reportedly and indeed found to be a wealthy couple, brutally killed in an orgy of violence. They are both killed in their own lifelong home in which a fire is also started. There's money still found at the scene and although it appears nothing has been taken, there's a key that's missing, in this case a key to a bureau that was never found. Deja vu? Because summarising like that, we could equally be describing the murders nine years later at Scoverston Manor as the two deaths at Langolman, couldn't we? They are just 24 miles apart. The man who found the bodies that morning in 1976, Nigel Rossiter, long believes that the deaths of Griff and Patty Thomas should be reopened and examined as a cold case. In the wake of Cooper's convictions, Discussing the 1986 appeal on Crime Watch UK concerning the deaths of Richard and Helen Thomas, Mr Rossiter told Tarot Now, Dad said at the time he thought the same person had done it because it was a similar incident, another lonely farmhouse and another brother and sister who kept money in the house. A fire had also been started. I would say yes, reopen it definitely now, because no murder weapon was found. I can't see myself or anybody. Your mind must be absolutely a blank if you think you can burn yourself at 70 or 73. A youngster wouldn't burn himself and lie in a fire. I would think the inquest verdict, though unsafe, I feel there would be a substantial case for looking at this particular crime again as a cold case. How about you guys? What do you think, eh? Now in the Huntsman Ottawa episode of this saga, I mentioned the name Florence Evans and said that her name would come into the tale again at a later point. Well here she does because her death is yet another that South Wales police were reportedly preparing to re-examine in connection with John Cooper. There is again little evidence available for researching about this particular death, but what is reported is that an inquest jury found her death to have been of natural causes with no suspicious activity involved. And perhaps it may even remain that it is, although the circumstances of her death do give food for thought. John Cooper and his wife had known Florence and her late husband Archie for several years, and living nearby, he'd visited her regularly and had done farming work for her over time. During his trial, he introduced her as he gave evidence for his own defence, saying... Flo and her husband Archie were the first to welcome us into Rosemarket when we moved there. Florence's niece, Jean Murphy, confirmed that her aunt, who she described as an active, independent woman, was indeed very friendly with Cooper and his wife, and that he was a regular visitor who would periodically work for her as a farmhand or do odd jobs or gardening for her. This came to an end on the 4th of February 1989, however, as Florence was sadly found dead in her home in the Thornhill area of Rosemarket, with her body being found in circumstances that can be at the very least deemed strange, if not suspicious. Florence was found in the bathroom of her home, fully clothed and with her slippers on, face down in a bath filled with cold water. The later inquest recorded a verdict of accidental death, the theory being that Florence must have been running a bath when she had slipped and subsequently fallen into the water. However, Florence's family, friends and neighbours were so deeply concerned by the strange circumstances of her death that made it sit not quite right with them. 
Jean Murphy questioned the inquest decision, saying that her aunt wasn't in the habit of taking baths and would instead shower, and equally dismissed the notion of her falling whilst preparing a bath, claiming that there was no fire lit in the kitchen arger at the time of her aunt's death, so she wouldn't have had any hot water for a bath anyway. Regardless, there was no sign of any forced entry to the property, the coroner found no evidence of foul play, and subsequently, the coroner's jury recorded a verdict of accidental death. They ruled this, despite hearing that only a few days before her death, Florence had confided in friends that she'd lost a set of her house keys. Lost them, or had them stolen perhaps. And once again, we're back to missing keys. Were Florence's missing keys perhaps in the bucket of 500 plus assorted keys that Cooper had in his cesspit? Was there a key to a bureau in there as well? In light of Cooper's conviction, members of her family told how they would now welcome a fresh look at her death and at the time it was reported that Detective Chief Superintendent Steve Wilkins, the detective who had spearheaded Operation Ottawa, was in agreement with them. He was quoted in 2011 as saying, Clearly there is connectivity between John Cooper and Flo Evans. John Cooper himself has introduced Florence Evans into his trial, and we were obviously aware of her prior to us taking the proceedings, and also the circumstances of her death, which were looked at within the coroner's court. I need to speak to my chief officers as to how we then progress any other investigations, if indeed we do. So I will sit down and speak with particularly the family first of Flo Evans to have those discussions with them as to whether we should in fact have a look at the circumstances of her death. However, any results of any discussions concerning or re-examinations of Florence's death have never been reported on further. And as I stressed at the onset of the episode, to date Cooper has never been charged with any further crimes so you'd have to imagine that this is one investigation that cannot be progressed. Yeah, it does sound a strange set of circumstances, doesn't it? And following on the verdict delivered in the case of the deaths at Langolman that we've just recounted of Griff and Patty, I'd have little faith in the coroner's juries around South Wales myself. Could it be what really happened was that Florence disturbed a burglar upstairs and was then brutally killed? She had to be because it was someone that she knew. Was the scene staged like this to appear as if a tragic accident and the inquest jury bought it? Again, we can't say this is for definite Cooper's handiwork. It is, after all, officially recorded as an accidental death. But if it was a case of murder, then need you look further than someone who was well known to the victim, an already established burglar who habitually took keys from the scenes and who by that time was at least officially a double murderer. As we've said many times before here on the show, Occam's Razor and all that. The final two deaths that are continually linked in with Cooper are both murders of that, there is no question. They're also the most high-profile deaths of any of the cases that are often mentioned with his possible culpability in that we've mentioned here and have been featured in several books, documentaries and podcast episodes, links to which will be with this week's show notes. It could unquestionably make an episode of its own this case, so I won't go too much into detail about it here. Perhaps it is one, though, that will be revisited at a later date. The two people, more than anybody, who wish for the particular case to be solved are married couple Jonathan and Cheryl Jones, for between the both of them, 
The events of the 26th of July 1993 have caused them great pain and loss. For Cheryl, it led to her losing her entire immediate family due to the actions of a brutal killer, and for Jonathan, it led to him losing two years of his liberty. The events of the tale take place at the isolated Tiara Wine farm on the meadows of Llanharry in the South Wales county of Rhondda Cunon Taff that had for many years been the home to 64-year-old retired fruit and vegetable wholesaler Harry Toos and his 67-year-old wife Megan. Megan had been born and raised on the farm and Harry had worked on the five-acre small holding once he and Megan had married, taking over the running of it following her father's death. The couple had a daughter, Cheryl, who by the early 1990s was living in Orpington in Kent with her then-boyfriend, Jonathan Jones, and it's fair to say that the two's family was a close one. Despite being senior in years, Harry and Meghan still ran the small holding, perhaps not to the extent they once had, although Harry showed no signs of slowing down at all. Over six feet in height and 16 stone, he was still a powerful man and formidable worker, reportedly being able to single-handedly lift heavy containers of diesel. On the morning of 26th of July 1993, a Monday, being creatures of habit, Harry and Meghan had made the short trip to the Tesco superstore in the nearby Talbot Green shopping park in the town of the same name for their weekly shop. Whilst here, they saw and chatted with Harry's sister Olive and her husband briefly, before heading to Than Harry Post Office to collect their weekly pensions. The couple had then returned home at about 11am, where Megan then began preparing lunch. At about 1.30pm that day, a neighbour who lived in a neighbouring farm heard the unmistakable sound of two shotgun blasts in quick succession, but being a farming community, this is not an uncommon sound really. The shots had come from the vicinity of Tiara Wine Farm and straight away the neighbour assumed that it was Harry out shooting rabbits, again a regular occurrence. She later told the South Wales Echo newspaper, I knew he'd been having problems with rabbits eating his cabbages. He'd planted the whole garden with them and the rabbits had taken them all so I knew he would shoot any rabbits that he saw. Later that Monday evening, and it's midway through Coronation Street, the Twos' favourite programme that they never missed. Knowing her folks would be at home settled watching it, Cheryl decided to call them during the advert break, but received no answer. She tried again shortly afterwards, but to no avail, and then began to become concerned, worried perhaps that something had happened to her father, who'd recently been in hospital following a hernia operation. After telephoning the Twos' local doctor and then the local hospital but to no avail, Cheryl rang a neighbour of her parents, farmer Owen Hopkins, and asked him to head over to the Twos' farmhouse to check if everything was okay. He agreed to do so and rang back shortly afterwards to say that although her parents' Land Rover Defender was there, there was no sign of Harry or Meghan anywhere and the door to the farmhouse was open. Cheryl now persuaded Jonathan to make the 200 mile drive to the Two's farmhouse to assist in finding the couple as she had to work the following day whereas he was between jobs. He duly set off in Cheryl's car at about 10pm and no sooner had he set off than the heavens opened and Jonathan was forced to drive at around 50 miles per hour the entire way. After stopping once to refuel at a service station on the M4, 
and then again on other services to telephone Cheryl to see if the appearance had turned up, only to be told that police were now at the scene, Jonathan finally arrived at the farm at about 3am. Police had by that time been contacted by worried neighbours and had attended the scene, and were at the farmhouse to greet Jonathan when he arrived there after his fraught journey. He was led into the sitting room that he'd spent so many happy times in before, and was left alone there for a period of time, noting that there were two mugs and a teacup set out on the table, as though Harry and Meghan had had a visitor. It wasn't long before an ashen-faced police officer came in and told him they'd discovered a man's body in the cowshed of the farm, hidden underneath a roll of old carpet, a stack of crates and boxes. A short time afterwards, news was broken to Jonathan that a second body had been found, face down a short distance from the first, and again covered with carpets, milk crates and other bits of detritus. Harry and Meghan for of course that's who the bodies were taken to be, had suffered severe and ultimately fatal injuries, inflicted from close range by a powerful 12-bore shotgun. Harry had been shot in the head from just above the right ear, a shot which had obliterated every bone in his skull and caused massive, instantly fatal injuries. Megan had also been shot in the head at close range from a distance of about three feet, most likely whilst trying to flee after witnessing her husband's horrific death. The killer had then spent time moving the bodies into the cow shed, where Harry was placed into a trough and Megan face down alongside a neighbouring short wall before covering the bodies with various items that were found within. They'd been that well hidden that they were not immediately apparent, a cursory glance had just shown a pile of crates, junk and farming equipment. The resulting police investigation revealed several lines of inquiry and sightings for police to examine, which were to lead to much speculation that remains with the case to this day, having never been satisfactorily resolved. A number of sightings of a professional-looking grey-haired man who'd been sighted with Harry and Meghan on several occasions leading up to their deaths were reported and followed up, but led to nothing, as were sightings of a grey Suzuki 4x4 Jeep seen in the area in the days leading up to and on the day of the murder. Predominantly, there were also a few reported incidents that suggested that Harry Toos was at the time of his death a worried man. Shortly before his death, he had reportedly visited the offices of the National Farmers Union to inquire about the legal services he was eligible for, for some vague reason, and there were unconfirmed reports of him having what was described as a furious Barney with someone outside his farm a couple of weeks before his death. The authenticity and any possible reasons behind these have never been explained, nor has any clear description surfaced of who he was rowing with. But much more alarmingly, Harry had, in the previous few weeks before his murder, bought himself a Luger pistol. Okay, fair enough, a farmer with a firearms licence, Harry had several shotguns kept in a locked cabinet downstairs, but the loaded Luger stayed upstairs to hand underneath the twos' bed. What was the reason for this? Could it stem from a burglary at the farm the previous month, which had occurred when the twos family were out at a funeral? Nothing of value had been taken from the property, no cash or items of jewellery that were in the house, Nothing, except for an old shotgun in a massive state of disrepair, belonging to Harry. Was Harry fearing that someone who'd been there once may now come back, this time for more? <laughs> 
And then five months after the murders, South Wales Police made an arrest in the case, charges of murder were brought, and a suspect was remanded in custody awaiting trial. The suspect? Jonathan Jones, Cheryl's boyfriend. Now South Wales Police certainly don't have the best track record concerning miscarriages of justice. The wrongful convictions of three men for murder in the celebrated case of Lynette White, the Cardiff News Agent 3 and the wrongful conviction of Wayne and Paul Darvell for murder are just some of the high profile cases that can all be laid at their feet. And incidentally, each of these cases I've mentioned will at some point feature as episodes of the show. Jonathan Jones was charged with the murders of Harry and Meghan Twos in December 1993, quite unbelievably based upon a solitary fingerprint of his that was found on the teacup that had been laid out on the sitting room table. The motive police suggested was a financial one, based upon an inheritance of £150,000 that would have passed to Cheryl upon the deaths of her parents, and it was suggested that Jonathan had made the round trip from Orpington to Harry, either by train or hitchhiking that day, had visited the farm and had tea with his girlfriend's parents, had shot both and hidden the bodies, then made his way back to Kent, arriving back at about 7pm. These charges were brought based solely on highly circumstantial evidence, but hung decidedly around the partial thumbprint on the saucer of the teacup in the sitting room. Now there are several links and texts concerning this case, as I've said, and I will include links that detail Jonathan's trial in greater detail in the show notes. Unbelievably, a majority verdict of 10-2 at Newport Crown Court decided on the 6th of April 1995 that he was guilty of double murder and Jonathan Jones was sentenced to life imprisonment, a decision which shocked both the defence and even the presiding judge, the late Mr Justice Rougier, who after the verdict was delivered could not speak for several minutes. Following the sentence of life imprisonment as decreed by law, Mr Justice Rougier was so troubled by the case that he wrote to then Home Secretary Michael Howard, stating, I am bound to record that the verdict caused me some surprise. There were undoubtedly many suspicious features about Jones's case, but at the same time, many items of evidence upon which the prosecution relied as pointers to guilt had fallen decidedly flat. Cheryl Toos had never for a second wavered in her belief of Jonathan's innocence, and within mere days of his conviction, she'd placed up a £25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her parents' killer or killers. She, alongside Jonathan's family, spearheaded a massive public campaign to get his conviction overturned, and at a hearing at London's Court of Appeal on the 10th of May 1996, in which there were 20 different grounds of appeal presented to the court, Jonathan's conviction was unanimously overturned. It had cost him more than two years of his life behind bars. And it helped to break the health of Cheryl, who today suffers from partial hearing and difficulty walking without support, all brought on by the stresses involved with not only the brutal death of her parents, but her now husband being wrongfully accused of and ultimately imprisoned for their murders. Following Jonathan's wrongful conviction, which to me is as mystifying as to how charges were ever brought as it was as to how a jury delivered a majority verdict of guilty, there have been several further inquiries over the years, but the case remains unsolved.
The one significant development in the case is the discovery in early 2003 of some painted shotgun barrels found in a quarry near the farm and a bag of shotgun cartridges that were found in a flooded mine nearby at the same time. Evidence which Jonathan and Cheryl believe is key to cracking the case. Jonathan told the South Wales Echo newspaper in 2008, 15 years after the crime, there was a mine that was capped and it was uncapped on the day of the murders. I'm led to believe that the capping of the mine is a fully robust process. That was uncapped on the day of the murder. You would have needed heavy duty equipment. I can only think that was the only opportunity for the shotgun cartridges to get down there. Yet by all accounts the investigation was so wound down by then that it was effectively shelved. And shelved it remained until it was re-examined again three years later following the conviction and imprisonment of John Cooper. For four shotgun murders in total, two double killings. As I've said repeatedly throughout the episode, John William Cooper has never faced any further criminal charges and there are no reports of the progression of any official investigation into his possible culpability in the murders of Harry and Meghan Twos, though he's long been linked with the murders as a person of interest. And even to the casual observer, it's easy to see why. Circumstantially, you've got the use of a shotgun, an elderly couple as victims, in a remote property, you have shots to the head, which were apparent in three out of four of Cooper's confirmed murders, you have the same house having been broken into only a short time before, with only a shotgun being stolen, a practice that Cooper was known to have done, returned to the scene of a previous burglary, and a shotgun being an item that Cooper was known to take whenever he found one during his burglaries. There's also the discovery of painted shotgun barrels abandoned nearby to the farm some years later, which again are both practices that Cooper was known to have carried out in the past. And although some 90 miles separate the Two's farm from his known cluster area of offending in Pembrokeshire, Cooper for many years had been a farm labourer and was a transient worker covering the length and breadth of the country, as we've said. So it's entirely feasible that he may possibly have met Harry Two's previously while working in the Harry area and had long earmarked T. Arrowine as a place to rob. And personally... Perhaps the most striking point to suggest that this curly-headed shitehawk may, just may, be the person responsible. By that time, 1993, he had already committed two double shotgun murders in the South Wales area. Occam's razor strikes again, eh? So the latter five that have been mentioned here are the deaths that John William Cooper has long since been linked to as a person of interest the names that South Wales Police were reportedly preparing to re-examine following his 2011 conviction. However, I placed in Hugh Watson at the start for a few reasons, because I've done this chronologically, and because I believe that Cooper, as a transient worker, shouldn't just be pinned into the Pembrokeshire, South Wales area for his offending. Many experts have suggested that 41 years of age, which Cooper would have been at the time of the Scoverston Manor murders, is an unusually late age to begin killing. So had he started some years before, and as a transient worker, not necessarily on his own doorstep, perhaps in North Wales for example. You also have to consider the common themes throughout each of these crimes, the farming connections, the extreme violence used, the use of fire in two of the cases, the missing keys in two of the cases, a stolen shotgun, 
the type of victims we're talking about, the type of rural property, it isn't a massive jump to think, yeah, it could very well be. But John Cooper's culpability in these crimes and cases mentioned within the episode must remain pure speculation, of course. There is no further information available through research that states the progress of any re-examinations into these crimes. It may even be a case of, and I would hate this to be the reason, but I can understand if it possibly is, that they may have been looked at collectively and unofficially it decided that the highly likely perpetrator of each crime is already serving a whole life sentence with no possibility of release. So why spend considerable time, money and effort trying to build cases where any possible charges and successful convictions would almost be negated if you like because the guilty party is already serving the ultimate sentence. So that's all well and good, isn't it? But that still doesn't bring justice for Hugh or Griff and Patty or Harry and Meghan or perhaps even Florence, does it? What do you guys think then? Are the real perpetrators in these cases still out there, never having faced justice? Or is he a single one already locked away, refusing to own up to his crimes? Clutching at straws, trying to make things fit here? Or when does the balance of circumstantial evidence tip over into the come on, who else can this possibly be category? I never profess to be right when I cover unsolved cases here on the show. As always, it's just good old thinking out loud here. I'd love as ever hearing your thoughts concerning the episode, which you can get in touch to do so should you wish through the discussion thread that will now be up within the show's Facebook discussion group. A special one which I think I shall link together all five parts of the South Wales Slayer arc. If anyone would be interested, I may also over time edit the episodes down into one humongous epic episode and make that available, perhaps for Patreon supporters. Let me know what you think. And with that guys, we conclude the series arc of the South Wales Slayer. Can you imagine me doing jazz hands here? I'm so bloody glad to see the back of John Cooper. Probably that prick who's made me ill this month. But really, it's been my pleasure bringing you my spin on the entire tale. It's the most in-depth that I've gone into on any case covered here on the show. And whilst it's been a hell of a lot of research, basically September, I'm very, very pleased with how the arc has turned out. That's despite this final part conspiring against me somewhat with the lurgy that I've had delaying it and then the laptop strops. But we got there in the end and we've nailed that bastard John Cooper right off. I hope that you guys have found the entire arc both an informative and interesting one also. It's one of the most remarkable and fascinating cases you could come across in total, isn't it? Now we should be back to business as usual here soon on the show. I'm still not too right of myself so I'm resting up until the 28th to get proper well before being back with you for another tale from The Enthusiast. I'll wrap up here now but by all means get in touch with the show should you wish to through any of the social media links. You can email me. I always love hearing from you guys and I'll always get back to everybody who does. Head on over to the Patreon site also should you wish to support the show and get yourself a stack of bonus episodes amongst other offers. And if you have a case that you think would be a good fit for a show episode, perhaps you may even want to research and write it up yourself, then by all means get in touch about that. There's nothing much left for me to say here now except that I thank you deeply for joining me for the episode today and throughout the whole South Wales Slayer arc. 
and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing each and every one of you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, folks, and goodbye for now.